2: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works.
0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick and we are back with part two of our exploration of, uh, of architecture in the mind.
1: That's right. In our first episode, which we do encourage you to go back and listen to if you have not already, uh, we discussed the natural world and then we discussed the architectural world, this world of artificial shapes and objects and designs and layouts and, uh, that, that we've made out of that natural world. And, and in many cases, we find ourselves living almost exclusively within those environments. Uh, the environment environments of cities especially
0: yeah, we discussed uh, studies about the uh, the psychological and cognitive impacts of different types of interior spaces, things like uh, color of interior spaces, ceiling height, and all kinds of stuff like that. Today, we're taking a turn into the cursed realm.
1: That's right. So to best understand the, the typical functionality of a healthy brain, scientists often study cases of illness and injury. So perhaps to help us understand, better understand the impact of great architecture and uh, and even like the, the, the different attributes of attributes of everyday architecture uh, we should also turn uh, uh, you know away from the world of vaulted cathedrals and pyramids and ziggurats uh, uh, and instead look at uh, the dark sorcery of architecture cursed architecture if you will okay uh, by the way if you do a, a web search for cursed architecture you'll find a lot of examples of of terrible usually quite quite insane home and building designs uh,
0: this was this a Twitter account you shared with me? Yeah. Uh,
1: I think cursed cursed architect or cursed architecture is a Twitter thing. But also, if you just look around for like worst renovations uh, uh-huh. and so forth, there are a number of different websites that will include a host of these photos. A lot of them hosted on like Pinterest or Instagram, but. I swear I was looking at some of these uh last Friday and I was just I was by myself laughing out loud so hard at them. Yes. And sometimes I couldn't even really quite put a finger on why.
0: Yes, but the I know exactly what you mean. I was also laughing really hard at this stuff you sent me uh the, the one I love the ones where there is like a ledge that cannot be accessed in any way. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's almost like uh, the places where there's like, you know, a, a room with a high ceiling and then against the wall up above, you know, where the second floor would be, there's like a hallway, but there's there are no stairs leading to it.
1: Yes, stairways to nowhere um – you know, weird, weird doors to nowhere, or doors in the middle of walls. You know, mm-hmm. anything where stairs have been have been altered drastically uh-huh. uh, are, are a great source of of hilarity in these shots. And it, it it again, it's weird to to try and like figure out exactly why some of these are funny because you know, sometimes it's people just doing the best with the limitations of an old building, right? An already weird layout, say, or an older, larger building that has been sliced into apartments. Uh I I remember visiting London uh, with my wife like, Fifteen years ago, I think, and staying in a weird old hotel where the first thing you did when you entered the room uh-huh. was walk down a flight of stairs—you uh-huh. know, things like things like that. But but then, then again, like given the limitations of the building, perhaps that was the best way to go
0: about it. Oh, I, I recently stayed in a, in a building in Paris with a hilarious staircase. It was like a spiral staircase. It wasn't quite a spiral. It was like a rectangular spiral staircase, and there was no stair there that was flat. I mean, it was angled one way or another, even out or in. And I imagine going up those things after uh, after a night out on the town might be might be quite perilous.
1: Uh, we had a work uh, trip we had to do to Chicago once. We stayed in a hotel. If I'm remembering this correctly, and yeah. on every floor there was a short stairway, stairway to a wall, going nowhere, going yeah. low, nowhere except to a painting. I think, like or? a
0: painting of a creepy fairy woman.
1: Yeah, it was. It was weird. Uh, so that sort of stuff. There's that sort of stuff. But then there are other examples where it's like, so- clearly, somebody just did not care or uh-huh. did not have time to care and did not look back to correct it, things where like a toilet can no longer close because uh, there's an overhang in the way, (laughs) Uh, you know, weird cases where uh, a a water faucet uh, comes out over the edge of a small sink Mm -hmm. or does not come out far enough to actually empty into the sink. Uh, Uh,
0: Some of them just had gross implications. I think there was one I was looking at that was just like a bathroom with a ton of urinals and like a thick shag carpet (laughs) (laughs) floor.
1: Yeah, any kind of carpeted bathroom scenario. Is uh, is awful, but yeah, I love the ones though where where not only did whoever you know renovated uh, this because clearly there's not really design elements there. Not not only did they fail, but someone did this and thought, eh, close enough, just leave (laughs) it, yeah. Uh, um and and this gets back to this idea of design though like there is this ideal version in mind where an architect is consulted uh you know they're are architects they're engineers and there's this there's this process of uh intentional design before something is built but of course historically and even sometimes contemporarily that's not always the same for instance i was talking with a friend of mine recently about how the, when they were younger they were um uh, you know they, they were they had this job and they were helping somebody uh, Build some buildings, and uh, there was just kind of the sense of like, well, we're just going to throw it up. We're just going to throw up some walls. And yeah, just... you know what goes into a building? You have got to have a
0: floor. <laughs> you got to have walls, roof. You know.
1: Yeah, and and so I guess you know, certainly with older buildings, and, and it's going to vary in different parts of the world. You know, there may be less intent in what is being built. It may be more about we need a structure. Uh, at the end of the week let 's build a structure, and maybe the individuals building it are not not quite uh, the you know the craftspeople that the the task requires but it's you know it 's one thing to screw up a renovation or to you know, mom, you know monumentally fail on a toilet installation it 's quite another to actually design and construct an entire building or multiple buildings that have a debilitating effect on our mental well being yeah, and the world is is full of examples. In which a stark or a less traditional architectural design draws the ire of local inhabitants, right? Often due to the fact that it replaced a more traditional building and or stands alongside traditional examples. Yeah. Um, and you can pretty much you can, you can drive around any major city and you can see that. You can see, all right, traditional building, traditional building. Weird modern building, and uh. you can be almost positive that at some point uh, the neighbors were upset about this or maybe are still upset about this.
0: Oh, yeah. It seems like every major city, if you talk to the locals, they'll have like the one ugly building that they hate.
1: Yeah. Uh, And and blogs are devoted to this sort of thing as well. Now, for my money, I I sometimes find this a bit dumb. Sometimes someone builds a cool modern home alongside a bunch of traditional little boxes and people with a more traditional taste, uh, they get bent out of shape over it. And I think... We have to realize that some of us want to live in weird gothic concrete apocalypse bunkers, and that's ultimately okay. Um, but then I go back to the McMansion example we mentioned in the first episode, the idea that you know, a developer comes along and builds a colossal house, as much houses as is possible in a given lot, and – that kind of thing I do find obnoxious. But then again, likely somebody comes along and is like, yes, that's, a, that's the exact amount of house I want, and I don't want to mow a lawn. So to a certain extent, some of these concerns are a bit ridiculous to even get too wrapped up in, right? I mean, it's just people's tastes are going to vary. Some people want traditional. Some people want modern. Some people want ultra modern. And some people maybe want to piss off the neighbors.
0: Oh, sure. I mean, the spite houses are a whole wonderful thing on their own. Yeah. Uh, we could come back to that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think one thing that's important to keep in mind as we go forward and, and think about the subject is the difference between just like our aesthetic preferences and what actually has psychological effects on people. Like the difference between what kind of school building seems nice to you versus what kind of school building actually has measurable outcomes on children's performance in, in, in their education.
1: Absolutely. So in in, in figuring it out and trying to decide like how much of it is – to what extent is there some sort of intrinsically debilitating aspect to certain architectural styles or approaches versus this idea of just personal taste? One has to uh, visit the topic of brutalist architecture. Uh, brutalist architecture uh, emerged out of uh, Switzerland, I believe, in the, the 1950s. Was especially popular in the 50s and 60s, and you can find it around the world, but especially in the UK, the US, Canada, uh, Western Europe, and uh, the Eastern Bloc, and in um, uh, the former Soviet Union. And generally, with Brutalist architecture, you're dealing with um, you know stark, imposing, geometric designs built with lots of concrete uh it is, it is often stark and some of what's classified as uh, brutalist i see uh, as as is beautiful creative or even evocative uh you know some uh, some of them uh, the designs feel very you know just ultra modern in, in a in a way or sometimes ultra modern in kind of like a retro fashion you know mm. um other examples are are harder for me to love but again your mileage is going to vary uh, when it comes to Brutalist architecture.
0: Uh, a lot of what's most recognized in Brutalist architecture are these large surfaces of exposed concrete. And in fact, that's where the name comes from. The name of Brutalist architecture does not come from it somehow being brutal, <laughs> uh, like a like a brutality yeah. in, in Mortal Kombat. Is that a thing, brutality? Oh, yeah. Okay. You're the MK expert here. Yeah, <laughs> um, But no, it, it comes from the phrase uh, baton brut, which means raw concrete. And that's because it has, uh, very often has these large raw concrete features. Uh, one example I think we mentioned in the last episode is Boston City Hall, which I think is, you know, one of the most famous brutalist structures, which personally I think is extremely aesthetically pleasing. I like it a lot, though. I know a lot of people hate it. It's apparently just a controversial building. I was saying one of the things I like about it is... Um, at least from some angles of the building, there are ways that it has sort of like a variable structure that can be like horizontally uh, uh, permeated but then sort of spreads out as it goes up. And in a way, to me, it is a concrete structure that sort of mimics a a forest. Something about it looks kind of like organic, like a a copse of trees that you could walk into. uh, And I really like that about it.
1: Yeah, I look at this image of it and it it defies... Sort of easy identification. Like I look at it and I would not be able to turn and necessarily draw it, you know? Yeah. Um, there's something that you – it it, it, it asks you to map it out, you know? It, it feels like an environment of concrete yeah. as much as, uh, you know, uh, it is a structure of concrete.
0: Yeah, and I think it, it incorporates some of the elements that we were talking about in the last episode that make for – uh, good structures, like uh, it has some patterned complexity. It, it has this uh, organic feeling type of variability in the structure. It somewhat looks like trees. Yeah, there's a sort of M.C. Escher vibe to it to a certain a extent. A l- little bit that yeah. too, yeah. But not in a way that makes it functionally confusing. Right, which is not, yeah, not
1: in a way where it seems to break uh, the laws of nature or physics or anything. So when we're when we're dealing with architecture of this sort, I think there are a few things we have to to realize. First of all, and we'll come back to this later, is that architecture does not exist in a vacuum, like a building, even just a highly designed building. It is not does not exist independent of say what that building is for. It doesn't exist independent of history, etc. But another big problem is that architecture is. An art form, a design medium, and a product or practice. It's not just about form and function. And art, it, since it is in part art, uh, is not just about making you feel good. I'll admit that most of my favorite visual artists uh, have, have have you know typically not been concerned with making people feel good. Right. Um, I think of like Irving Norman or H. R. Giger or Bruegel, or Bosch. You know, th- I love these artists, uh, and you might love them too. But do you want them influencing uh, the power of your physical environment? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I suppose on some level you do. If you're tempted to frame a print uh, of it on your wall, but are uh, then you? But would you inflict it upon the neighborhood? Would do you inflict you, it upon a whole city?
0: Do you want to live in a Bosch painting? Yeah.
1: <laughs> so uh, I wanted to discuss a few examples of unpopular buildings uh, or buildings that at least have been very unpopular with segments of the population. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of them, and I would consider this an extreme example, is uh, the House of Soviets in uh, Kaliningrad located uh, in Kaliningrad Oblast, an exclave of Russia on the Baltic Sea. And this is a historically Prussian area, but again, is, uh, is, it was part of the Soviet Union and is part of Russia today. The House of Soviets is built on the grounds, but not the exact site of the former Konigsberg Castle, which was destroyed during the Second World War. But the House of the Soviets built in the 70s does not look like a Teutonic castle. Uh, instead, <laughs> it looks. Uh, it is frequently described as looking like... The head of a giant robot that has been buried um, up to the neck in the earth.
0: It looks like uh, almost kind of a gigantic concrete battery somehow. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, if you look, Maybe a huge concrete air conditioning unit with eyes.
1: Yeah, it, it does appear to have eyes and kind of a mouth and even horns perhaps. Some locals have also called it the monster in the past. Uh, again, it's the, the House of Soviets. If you look it up online, you'll find plenty of pictures of it. Uh, I will note that you will find two different versions generally, and that's because uh, it used to have more of a concrete, dark appearance, certainly more brutalist uh, like clearly brutalist in its appearance uh, because it is often held up as a great example of brutalist architecture mm-hmm. but uh, it was in 2005 i believe which also coincided with a visit uh, by Vladimir Putin that it was paint, painted a new color so now it has this awful blue color which is even <laughs> worse because it's like it's it's not even it's like you're hiding the fact or covering up the fact that it's brutalist you know it's like it's not raw concrete anymore it is raw concrete that has been painted the color of an Easter egg. Mm-hmm. So again, critics consider it one of the worst examples of Soviet architecture, though it has also been held up as a solid example of brutalist architecture. And it's it's also, I should add, it's a little unfair to completely judge it, even based on the older pictures you'll find of it, because it has never truly been finished. It is technically an unfinished building. It oh, fulfills huh. no purpose as a building to this day. I didn't know that. Yeah, so um, uh, again, we have to realize that architecture does, does architecture does not exist uh, in a vacuum. Um, it doesn't exist in its own bubble. History, politics and culture, color are uh, perceptions of them. Uh, in its conception, the House of the Soviets was perhaps designed to be you know, either a symbol of modernity or progress, progress but it might also be viewed as a tombstone symbolizing Soviet uh, or Russian rule over historically German city, that sort of thing. Or you might look at it and realize that does nothing. There's nothing going on in there because this was never finished. This is a testament to an unfinished uh, project. But not everything considered brutalist is like a monster level of uh, of, of of ugliness, uh, etc. Uh one I think great example uh that kind of, you know, uh, bucks the um, the stereotype for brutalist architecture is Montreal's Habitat 67 complex, uh which was designed by Moshe Safdie, which uh, you you need to look up a picture of this as well because I can only describe it so well. Uh it looks like a long horizontal row of randomly stacked boxes at different angles um, and it, it it's it's quite interesting to look at in my opinion, and was actually designed with some of the problems of high density living in mind
0: I think it actually looks kind of interesting i yeah. mean it I mean, to me, it somewhat fulfills that. You know, it has uh, some complexity on the exterior surfaces. It has uh, it has a kind of organic nature to it. It feels more like a natural environment.
1: Yeah, it's it, it basically, and I'm this is like a very crude summary of it. I'm sure that the the, the architects' original words about it were, were far. Uh, Far, it's a far better expression of it. But it's kind of like if I have to live right on top of where someone else is living, well, can't I live a little, a little sideways or a little to the left or a little to the right? Uh-huh. And likewise, does the person above me, could they maybe be a little further back, a little to the side? Maybe there's some room uh, in all of this for little courtyards, little porches. And so it does have that kind of ziggurat feel. It has this kind of... It looks kind of like it was made by by space
0: age insects. Uh-huh. It turns concrete uh, box living spaces into something more like a, uh, you know, like a, a like a bush of thorns, which um, that doesn't sound very inviting, but it looks very cool actually.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, if I'm remembering correctly, I don't think it was mentioned in the book Future Shock, but I think the kind of campy television adaptation of Future Shock uh, that was hosted by Orson Welles, I think they pictured, uh, they used images or footage of Habitat 67 talking about like living spaces of the future. Uh, another quick example that's sometimes brought up uh, concerning uh, brutalist architecture, uh, from the 1970s, uh, the, oh, it's what, Neve, Nev Brown Brutalist Department in Rowley Way, London, uh, which has a kind of terraced look to it. Yeah. And I think looks quite beautiful. It, it looks it looks kind of like a stadium turned into apartments, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and uh, I, I rather like it. But again, it's one of these where it's not that uh, stereotypical idea of brutalist architecture. But again, not everyone likes it either. Now, a huge example of detrimental modern but not brutalist architecture uh, that is often brought up was the uh, is uh, is what was known as the Pruitt ego housing complex in St. Louis, Missouri. This was built in the 1950s and designed by Minoru uh, Yamasaki of a World Trade Center fame. Huh. And the complex consists of consisted of 33 apartment blocks, each 11 stories high, and uh, you know it. It actually sums up a lot of the things that Habitat 67 was trying to get away from. Like if you look at an aerial picture of what this looked like, I mean it looked like a, a, a graveyard for giants. Yeah, It's just big slabs of apartment buildings with these big empty spaces in between and uh, it, it's just uh, – Ugh, it's, it's, just, it's tough to look at. As described by Michael Bond in The Hidden Ways That Architecture Affects How You Feel, uh, written for BBC Future, the complex, quote, quickly became notorious for their crime, squalor and social dysfunction. Critics argue that the wide open spaces between the blocks of modernist high rises discouraged a sense of community, particularly as crime rates started to rise. Uh, as as a result these bleak prison like slabs of housing were demolished in 1972 and this is an example that, that is often discussed when people talk about like what's an example of of architecture that uh, has it's, a detrimental effect on the people that have to live with it
0: right uh, that it not necessarily may well i mean i don't want to ascribe ill intentions to the architect but like that is that is not properly tuned with the well being of its inhabitants in mind right yeah and
1: it's yeah it's also worth pointing out the, the architect does not have Sole power over like where a building is is constructed or why it is constructed there, yeah. uh, you know certainly getting into um, critiques of uh, segregation, of course, uh, yeah. involving a, a site like this. But yeah, it, it also just comes back again that buildings do not exist in their in their own bubble; they don't exist in a vacuum, and they can certainly contribute to or antagonize existing social problems. So these are just a couple of examples. There are certainly loads of ugly and or joyless buildings in cities around the world, and we keep building them. Uh, I mean, if you look at the current skyline of New York City, uh, you'll see the full spectrum. You'll see uh, exciting buildings, nostalgic buildings, uh, modern buildings that are quite interesting to look at, modern buildings that make you uh, a little bit angry to look at. And plenty of other buildings that you barely see at all because they are they are just so lukewarm that your mind cannot even hold them.
0: But again, coming back to something we talked about in our first episode, um, the importance of having nearby access to green space with natural vegetation uh, there. I mean, you kind of can't think about the architecture of new york city or certainly think about the architecture of manhattan without thinking about central park yeah central park i mean there's a reason that almost every photo you see of manhattan has something to do with you know you either get the skyline down from below or you're looking at part of central park
1: yeah or you get a shot that has the river in it like yeah. the, you you have to have that that natural element and moving water is another one that is sometimes factored into these uh, these studies like <laughs> it, it, can a body of water be seen by A patient's recovering in a hospital, etc. Right. All right. On that note, we're going to take our first break. But when we come back, we will get further into this question Can buildings damage your mental
0: health? Hey, everybody. You know what's a sneaky good holiday gift? Super comfortable Bombas socks. Most people don't ask for socks, but that is just because they haven't worn Bombas. And I can attest personally, they sent us some socks to try out, and boy, they are my favorite socks I own now. No lie, they, these are really, really comfy.
1: Yeah, I'm wearing my Bombas right now. They fit, they're, they're comfortable, and they have a vampire Muppet on them. I couldn't ask for anything more.
0: It's the best. But did you also know that socks are the number one most requested item in homeless shelters? Bombas socks were created to change that. For every pair you buy, Bombas donates a pair to someone in need.
1: Yeah, and uh, Bombas socks provide support in places you didn't even know you needed support, like your arches. Each sock is built with a special arch support system that's not too tight.
0: It's more like a nice hug for your foot. Oh, okay. I've i felt that, but I didn't understand what it was. Yeah, it's you're so feeling nice. the hug, man. Yeah, it's a good hug. All right, so go to Bombas.com dot slash mind today, and you'll get twenty percent off your first purchase. That's bombas. dot com b o m b a s. dot com slash mind blown. bombas. dot com slash mind blown. All right, we're back. So uh, we've been talking
1: about uh, brutalist architecture, houses that are in uh, homes and buildings, art, architectural structures and creations that some may criticize as being ugly or imposing. So I would like to imagine imagine that you know, you you take a walk in your own neighborhood, and suddenly you see that overnight. <laughs> like the, the castle from Kroll, uh, the monster, uh, the House of Soviets has, has emerged in your neighborhood. Um, and you might wonder, well, is, is this, this, is, this may be ugly. I may not like it. I may uh, have questions about what happened to uh, you know, the, the, the park that, it, that was formerly uh, in that space. But, uh, but is it going to actually damage my health? Is it actually going to have some sort of tangible effect on my mental well-being? And uh, in looking at this, uh, we've discussed some of our uh, sources here already. I think I already mentioned Michael Bond's BBC Future 2017 article, The Hidden Ways That Architecture Affects How You Feel. But another source I was looking at uh, is a piece in The Guardian from 2016 by Emily Reynolds titled, Could Bad Buildings Damage Your Mental Health? Reynolds points to some basic stats about urban living. uh, And this came from a 2010 meta-analysis. First of all... uh, uh, people living in urban environments in large cities, 21 percent more likely to experience an anxiety disorder and 39 percent more likely to experience mood disorders. Uh, and then Re- Reynolds also points to a 2005 uh, study that said people who grew up in a city were, are twice as likely to develop schizophrenia as those who grew up in the countryside. Furthermore, a 2011 Central Institute of Mental Health at the University of Heidelberg study pointed to a link between urban living and greater stress responses in the amygdala and the uh, cingulate cortex linked to emotional regulation, depression, and anxiety. So this could have a lasting effect on brain development and mental illness susceptibility, she writes. As Bond points out, uh, this points to the idea that, quote, Urban living can change brain biology in some people, resulting in reduced gray matter in the right dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and the perigeneal anterior cingulate cortex, two areas where changes have previously been linked to early life stressful experiences. Now, Reynolds also um, acknowledges the rather subjective nature of all this, such as, you know, drastically conflicting studies on open office spaces, like we discussed in our first episode. Right. You know, do they promote pro-social working or are they bad for productivity and well-being? Depends on which study you consult. Uh, If you consult me, however, I'll tell you that that hell is an open space office. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Now, uh, th- well, wait, but I mean, don't you want to collaborate in hell? Don't don't you really get uh, get your your jimmies uh, collaborating with the other imprisoned souls?
1: No, I mean I take a more of a Dickensian view of hell, where uh. the hell is where you experience the chain that you forged in life. It's not about sharing your chain with other people. <laughs> But of course, things like this—it's often a careful balance, right? You know, consider cohousing, in which private homes are clustered around shared spaces. The idea is that, unlike dreary apartment towers, they can foster a sense of community through shared spaces. Uh, uh, and some sp- studies report this. Others, though, say residents can lose their sense of individuality and privacy. Uh, it kind of comes into the our varied demands for a natural environment, right? Sometimes we want a place to hide away. Sometimes we need a place to, uh, you know, delight in the sun and share with others. And the natural environment tends to provide us such variety. But once you, uh, you have a, like a, an apartment complex plan in place, like that is the environment. And I think this is, again, another area where you have to take into account the careful balance, um, uh, you know, among the different types of personalities out there, the ups and downs of human moods. You might want to stand in the sun, rejoice in the sun one day, but then you may need to hide in the shadows on another. And those are just the ups and downs of life. Sure. Uh, Reynolds also quotes uh, Layla McKay, Director of the Center for Urban Design and Mental Health, whose think tank has tackled the complex nature of this problem uh, and, and you know, tried to figure out you know, what, are some, what are what are some basic take homes we can we can acquire from it and She says the following are key uh, to having a quality architectural design uh, in a living space. First of all, access to nature or green spaces. We talked about that a good bit yeah. in the last episode. Yeah, this is just a no-brainer, and just, it just ties into to study after study after study. Uh, also, she stresses public spaces that facilitate physical activity and encourage
0: social interaction. Uh, yeah, this is, for example, one thing people have talked about in the history of city design when cars became ubiquitous in cities. Uh, suddenly that streets were no longer a place where people would gather and meet and talk. But instead mm-hmm. there were places that were introversible because there were fast moving vehicles going back and forth all the time. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, just uh, there needs to be a place where we can move around and interact with people if we want to. Now, another thing she stresses living and working in spaces that feel safe, sure, which on one hand is obvious we don 't want to live or work somewhere where we do not feel safe, but that can apply to a lot of things you know you can certainly apply that to say a whole neighborhood layout, but you can also apply it to things like in in our own building, the building in which you and I work. There is our office and then there is an extremely long, largely featureless hallway that goes to the elevator bank.
0: It's sort of a John Carpenter hallway. I, I often think when watching people walk down it ahead of me that there should be a Carpenter soundtrack, yeah. you know, kind of a dun-dun. <laughs> 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 yeah, I mean, I,
1: I'm not saying that the hallway, that hallway makes me personally feel unsafe or in danger, but it is unnerving and I, I feel like it – it does mess with my my perceptions a little bit about potential threats, you know, like, like if I, someone else is coming down that hallway and I don't want to interact with them, I have no choice. I'm just – I'm on a train and I'm going to walk past them. And it, it it makes me feel weird. It makes me want to avoid that hallway because on some level, I don't feel 100% safe there. Maybe I feel 90% safe there, but I would rather feel 100% safe, if possible, uh, in the building in which I work.
0: No, I mean, it, 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 you're, what you're saying sort of connects to what – I mean, it, it feels like a, you know, follow the yellow line and escape from New York kind of hallway.
1: Yeah. Uh, I'm also reminded – a friend of mine was telling me about this um, – The uh, Atlanta-based neo-futurist architect John Portman, who is uh, is generally best remembered for very large, impressive atriums in hotels, Mm -hmm. which they themselves—this was also something that was fairly controversial uh, because— you walk into a big hotel and then someone would look up and say, look at all this wasted space. This is not how you build a hotel. A hotel is supposed to be, uh, you know, wall-to-wall rooms. So you get the maximum out of the space. And, uh, and that's certainly not what you find uh, in his, uh, in his, his uh, buildings. These are the sort of atriums that you'll sometimes find uh, in science fiction films where mm-hmm. they've, they've clearly filmed it in, a, in an enormous uh, atrium in a, uh, a hotel
0: I I tend to think these things look really cool.
1: Yeah, I I love them as well. Uh, They are very—this kind of design is very much about the interior world, however, and uh, some apparently criticize John Portman for using, like, internal halls and kind of tunnels to connect buildings to one another rather than using open areas and exposure to nature even. But that does make me wonder if there was true nature to expose people to or if it was a situation where you're cutting them off from, like, a dreary street.
0: yeah. Well, and one thing I like, you know, in in some of these big buildings like hotels that have large atriums, I mean, sometimes they will have vegetation within the atrium, Mm -hmm. having like trees inside there, which is great.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's certainly ways to bring nature into an indoor environment. Mm and some are very extreme. Like I'm reminded of the with the Opryland Hotel in Nashville, Tennessee, where they Is have that
0: the one that's got the rainforest. Yeah, in there? it's yeah. like silent running. It has the big, it's
1: big great. Gate. Yeah, it's, I remember.
0: I went there when I was a kid. I loved it.
1: Yeah, because it's also kind of like going to um, a Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory.
0: I think I remember believing it possible that I could catch a poison dart frog there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so uh, in, uh, in this article by, R- by Reynolds, uh, Reynolds uh, points to a frequently cited example, uh, Barbican Estate in London. So this is a brutalist development of terrace blocks and towers uh, built from the 1960s through the 80s. And it's it's fairly frequently criticized for all the normal reasons people criticize uh, bru- uh, brutalist architecture. But McKay points out that it actually checks off all the boxes that we mentioned above, you know, the nature and the green spaces, the public spaces, uh, the living and working in spaces that feel safe, etc. Uh, they do mention, however, that darkness is sometimes a luxury in in a place like this which is also interesting to consider coming back to that idea that sometimes you want the shadows sometimes you don't want the wide open spaces and uh, and certainly I mean I, I've certainly lived in places where I feel like there's just way too much light pollution and it's kind of hard to find that dark, Corner in which to actually just sleep at night. Mm-hmm. Still, one of the I think the keys here is this. All of this suggests that a building can be ugly and still be good for mental health, uh, but the design is still key. I think likewise, it sounds like it's very possible to have an outwardly built a beautiful building that is would be depressing to live within.
0: Oh well, this goes with something that uh, we were talking about that Sarah Williams Goldhagen emphasized in her book that we discussed a little bit in the last episode. It was that um, you know architects often end up thinking most of all about the overall form of buildings, mm-hmm. you know, like the, the broad sort of like shape and profile of it. Uh, but that in fact for people's direct enjoyment of buildings and, you know, the, their, their emotional reactions to buildings, what are actually more important are smaller scale things like uh, surfaces and materials and textures and features. Yeah. So I think it's possible you could actually have a building that That a lot of people would look at the overall form of from the outside and think it's ugly, but it might be a better place to live in in terms of interior surfaces and features and that kind of thing. In addition to the major points we were just talking about with like access to green space and social interaction spaces and all that.
1: Yeah, the health advantage of of having access to a scenic environment. Um, Reynolds also points out that neglected environments uh, contribute to mental ill health making us feel unsafe uh, and, and they may also quote contribute to anxiety and persistent low mood uh, that's from a, a Centers for Disease Control and Prevention study by Jackson et al. And others have pointed to the signs of social ills, such as graffiti and vandalism, as potentially contributing to this as well. Though I think we have to be careful not to, to veer directly off into the like the broken windows theory of policing and criminal behavior.
0: Right. Well, a lot of graffiti is fantastic. Yeah. I mean, uh, there are uh, there are great graffiti artists. There are parts of Atlanta that are known for their graffiti that, uh, that it, you know, provides a beautiful... Beautiful kind of character to the place. There have been some
1: fabulous uh, public art programs that have been aimed at at, at bringing like large scale murals to uh, particularly you know, areas with, with problems mm-hmm. as an attempt to just kind of like beautify things and basically have the the, the beneficial side of these effects we're talking about mm-hmm. uh, work their way on the inhabitants and they they're uh, they're generally been very well received. High-rise living, Reynolds writes, uh, might seem like a great idea because, of course, it can it can afford that killer view, right? You can see the river, you can see the park, you can see uh, green spaces in the distance, etc. Uh, you know, w- wealthy penthouses uh, deliver this, uh, but then also someone in community housing uh, would be able to look out at the river as well in a high-rise environment. But the flip side of this is that locations like this can contribute to isolation. It's something where more, it's an area where more study is needed. But again, it shows that you, you can't just have the view of, of nature. You know, the, mm-hmm. There are all these other factors as well. Uh, and if your view of nature is coming from an isolated tower, uh, it's only going to do so much good, especially if you you're, you're not having the social interaction, you're not having any of these other boxes checked off for you by the design. And of course, this leads us to shopping centers and malls, <laughs> which we might think of them as soul draining places. But according to the Restorative Potential of Shopping Malls, 2016 by Rosenbaum et al., uh, many of these actually have, quote, mentally restorative qualities because think about it. They're safe. They're open. Uh, you know, essentially, they're, a lot of them are like large, uh, uh, you know, enclosed environments, the sort of classic mall, uh-huh. um, which hopefully— people are still getting to experience uh, outside of just viewings of uh, Stranger Things and Shopping Mall. I mean, some actually have greenery in them, vegetation. Yeah, and and they may be well-maintained. But then the flip side is that is that there are also places that are highly controlled. And obviously, there are places where uh, retailers are using all of their tricks to try and uh, control your behavior, influence your behavior as well. And so that can have ultimately an effect on anxiety and other factors. I also can't help but imagine... I mean, when you go to a shopping place, you're going there to engage with decision fatigue. Mm -hmm. Like whatever your mental state is going in, no matter how nice the greenery, no matter how uh, cool the architecture is, uh, no matter how pleasant the music is, mm-hmm. uh, maybe, uh, you're still going to potentially hit find yourself in that situation where you're like, I have no idea what to buy anymore. My brain is
0: depleted. And a shopping mall almost by definition provides a lot of buying options. Right. And, and having a lot of buying options often contributes directly to the, those negative feelings associated with shopping.
1: Exactly. So Reynolds ultimately, you know, writes that with increased awareness of mental health issues and more work in this design area, quote, buildings and public spaces are being designed or at the very least critically analyzed with mental well-being in mind. Now, in Michael Bond's 2017 piece, uh, it's not maybe that doesn't quite echo as much optimism for the present but does seem hopeful about the future writing that quote urban architects have often paid scant attention to the potential cognitive effects of their creations on a city's inhabitants but he did point out that there's uh, every year the Conscious Cities Conference takes place Uh, in 2017 it took place in London I, I read that in 2019 it took place in New York City with a focus on building resilient communities, healthy child development and parenting, reshaping later life and urban been designed for mental health. Uh, If you want to learn more, you can check them out at uh, theccd.org. That's the
0: Center for Conscious Design.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So Bond points out that that recent studies have used actually wearable devices such as bracelets that monitor monitor skin uh, conductivity, uh, a marker of uh, physiological arousal, and smartphone technology to see how we're responding and where we're responding to architecture. Mm-hmm. And so this makes sense. You can strap people up, send them out in the city, and you can see like what's spiking their activity.
0: Yeah, right. Where are people walking when they're getting stressed and stuff? Right. Like, are, do they tend to be walking past this one horribly ugly featureless building and that's making them more kind of, uh,
1: <laughs> Yeah, the, the uh factor. And that's, that's exactly what they were looking for. Colin Ellard, uh, who researches uh, the psychological impact of design at the University of Waterloo in Canada, is one of the researchers uh, that's using this kind of technology. And they found that building fa- facades had a huge impact. And they specifically pointed out a quote dead zone of quote long smoked glass frontage of a Whole Foods store in Lower Manhattan.
0: All right, so this Whole Foods is directly ruining
1: people's quality of life. I mean, <laughs> it's like maybe, the swamp of sadness from the Neverending Story. Yeah,
0: <laughs> not so not solely, but uh, yeah. So they walk past this storefront with the frosted glass and like the. You are detecting physiological signs of stress and anxiety and unhappiness.
1: Yeah, and it's not because it's like crazy weird architecture. It's not brutalist. It's not. It's not covered with graffiti or anything. It's not like you feel unsafe. It's just. It's just there, and it's dreary, and it's it's like what you see everywhere. It's it's been pointed out as one of the potential threats of of, you know, the loss of, uh, you know, mom and pop stores for sure, but also just places with individual identity as street level at any rate cities turn more and more into, you know, chain, chain restaurant here, and here's the a big box store here. And there's a sameness to everything and the the lack of variety. Uh, you know, it, it takes us out of the sort of variety that we would need in the natural world and would also historically find in a more vibrant city environment. Mm-hmm. Certainly, like that's what you think of when you think of, of walking the streets of New York, right? right, That's the cliche. Not seeing a block of, uh, of storefront uh, for, you know, whatever your big box store happens to be. No, you, you're expecting to see weird thing here, weird thing here, strange little store here, uh, something up and coming over here. You know, it's, we want that kind of experience. We want the same sort of hike through the wilderness experience even in our urban environments. Of course. Again, we're living in a time, though, where, you know, there's more and more consciousness about mental health, though, uh, and we have decades now of, of studies about the impact of design and things we can do to, to, to help to have like a, a, you know, an actual benefit uh, on our mental well-being. Uh, for instance, uh, when it comes to social interaction, human interaction, uh, so, uh, sociologist William Wythe was a, a key advocate in the 1970s of design that pushed people closer together and encouraged social interaction. And one of his colleagues, Bond writes, uh, founded the Project for Public Spaces, which means made key moves, such as deploying benches to make certain public spaces more inviting to the public. Put some benches there, make it seem like people are supposed to be here, and then by being here, they will interact with one another uh, in various ways. Uh, and another important aspect of city design brought up uh, by Kate Jeffrey, a behavioral neuroscience scientist at, the Uni- at University College London, is that, mo- that the more lost you feel in a city, the more out of sync, isolated, and potentially afraid you feel. And this is also important inside of a building. So... When you walk into the building, do you feel lost? Do you feel like you are in a maze? Because that's not good, because the interior of space should be more like a labyrinth, a place that is maybe complex, that is interesting to behold and experience, but there is not a sense of anxiety about where you are going. When you enter a true labyrinth, You will always go to the center of the labyrinth and back out again. You will always go exactly where you need to go. A maze is the uh, edifice in which you become lost and possibly consumed by a minotaur.
0: Huh. I don't think I was aware of that distinction. Oh, yeah. I've just used them. They're
1: often used interchangeably even by the... The best of writers. Uh, so I, don't, I try not to get bent out of shape when I'm reading something and uh, they say maze when they mean labyrinth, etc. It's
0: not as elegant
1: to say pan's maze. Yeah, <laughs> pan's maze. Yeah, it's not as good. Labyrinth feels more appropriate. All right, we're going to take one more break. But when we come back, we are going to explore the world of hostile architecture. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Start saving on wireless today at visible.com. Monthly rate on the visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit visible.com. All right, we're back. Now, Joe, you're the one who turned me on to this idea of hostile architecture. I was I was blissfully unaware of this.
0: Well, it's not something I ever had a, a deep knowledge about. It's just something I'd I'd seen in a few places, and I you know I was just reading a little bit about it online. The idea that sometimes Architectural designs that you would use, uh, say, defending a fortress against an invading army, can be turned inward and can be used within a society itself, even within a city itself, in ways that are both interesting and sad. Right. Yeah, using
1: these features against residents of the city itself, uh, especially uh, the homeless. So one of the older examples of this sort of thing uh, is probably the flint cone. A number of you have seen this. I'm going to describe it and a lot of you will go, OK, I know what you're talking about. This was just deployed in the 19th century in Norwich, England, uh, along with other designs to curb public urination in the city. Uh, because basically men walking about through the city would need to urinate and having few options, they would turn to, you know, a handy dimly lit corner in the exterior of a stone building. Right, And that's where they would pee. But such urination, of course, creates an odor and it even damages materials. So building odors employed a few different strategies against public urination, such as gates around such little corners and nooks and crannies, or even more drastically— Filling
0: those corners in with brick and mortar, sometimes in the shape of a cone. Right. So where you would have a recess that would normally just be a little corner where you could face into the corner and no one would see what you were doing with the front of your body. Instead, there's a, you know, human height shaped cone of bricks and stuff. Right. That is going to, I guess, cause your urine to flow back towards your feet. Right. But also just doesn't give you any privacy. Whereas normally this corner would have allowed privacy. Now there is no way to be private there. Right. Right.
1: Of course, you might not have much of an issue with this, right? You're probably not a huge fan of public urination. Uh, but here's the thing. It does not address the root problem. There are people in the city with nowhere to pee. Public toilets were not readily available. Transforming these corners didn't actually solve the problem. It just redirected it to other places like other other corners that didn't have cones implanted in them. Uh-huh and And it you know ultimately made life even more miserable uh, for the Norwich wanderers uh, who had full bladders. Now, the city eventually made public restrooms more available, uh, but many of these structures still remain, especially the the cones because they are rather permanent in their construction, sure. Now, lack of a place to relieve oneself can still be a problem for the urban homeless today, though this is a problem that is addressed to a large extent by public restrooms, which are deployed with varying degrees of success depending on which city you're looking at and where you are in that city. But like just yesterday, I was outside – our own city zoo and an individual walked up and asked me where the nearest bathroom was and naturally there's one inside the zoo but that requires a membership or a a ticket to get into Mm -hmm. and I said there was one at the entrance to an adjacent park but I wasn't sure if renovations were affecting it and then he said that he tried that one and he couldn't get into it and then my only suggestion was just tell him well there's a, a coffee shop across the street and of course a coffee shop is the sort of place where one usually encounters a customer's only policy for restrooms and in some areas you even have to have a key or the receipt code off of a receipt to get in there. So the problem still remains. Uh, the homeless also need a place to sit and to sleep, a situation addressed to some extent by shelters and other initiatives. But what about these public spaces, these green spaces we've been discussing that have such a, a benefit for all of us? Like These these places have an important impact on our mental wellness and uh, and certainly access is even more vital for individuals on the margins who may also very well be struggling with depression, anxiety, and/or mental illness. But unfortunately, there's often an effort then to prevent the homeless from using such areas. And to be fair, if a public space is, is overrun by homeless individuals, that you know, I guess it can certainly become less desirable for some members of society. Uh, and but. The result is we see other examples of what critics have dubbed "hostile architecture," also known as defensive design, in our modern cities. And here are just a few examples. First of all, park benches with armrests down the middle.
0: Right. So the the goal there is to make a bench that you can sit on, but you can't really lay down on. Right. Uh, another one: spikes or bolts installed on stairs
1: or on areas of the pavement itself. This is something I've only seen photos of. I don't think I've seen this in in real life, but uh, yeah, just the idea of like, well, here's a place where one could lay. Mm-hmm. Or here's some stairs someone could potentially lay on, but we're going to put spikes there instead, <laughs> which which is a drastic uh, solution. Yeah. Another one, gates around various fountains, uh, specifically around uh, the 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 edge or the lip of the fountain where one might normally sit. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the placement of boulders or other objects such as bike racks or other structures in place of benches or in spots that were previously popular gathering places for the homeless. Or uh, here's another one, sprinklers that have at least allegedly been placed to deter squatters.
0: Oh, like in parks? Yeah. yeah.
1: So some of the and then as far as benches go we mentioned the bench with an armrest down the middle but some of the designs that have been uh, utilized uh, are really quite elaborate and you might not even recognize their true purpose at first glance as with the uh, South Philadelphia Transit Authority's modern chrome rib-like benches that that look cool they look they look like I say like this weird space curvy rib thing but um Uh, As I read in What's Behind the Uptick in Hostile Architecture by Elizabeth Wallace, published in Architectural Digest, the intention here is to create benches that
0: are difficult to sleep on. Yeah, they're not flat. They've got these ridges in them that will sort of cut into you if you try to lay down.
1: Yeah, so it's probably a worthwhile exercise, especially for anyone out there who uses like public transportation and visits urban public spaces. Like the next time you see a weird bench or even a beautiful bench, ask yourself, could could I sleep on this? Could I lay down and sleep on this? Could I even set up and sleep on this? And then what does that say? Um, another example, London's concrete Camden benches have often been criticized for this. Uh, and you could, uh, they're just, again, this kind of like weird bench design that is uh, like you look at it and you ask yourself, could I lay on that? And the answer is no, not comfortably at all. And you also see variations of this sort of design when it comes to anti-skateboarding uh, features as well that have been oh. retrofitted fitted on things i
0: 've noticed the others i 've never noticed anti skateboarding stuff yeah, I wonder what that 's like
1: um ba- basically it 's like like little like metal ridges, metal bars, things that are added to and i don 't have any skateboarding um, lingo uh, in my brain i 'm sorry, but the thing just the, call everything ollie. The th- okay, the thing where they ollie along the side of the, the like the, concrete, the ollie? Yeah, or the bench or the concrete by the fountain. Uh-huh. uh Put a metal bar somewhere there to disrupt such activity. Then
0: you can't ollie.
1: Yeah. Uh, so obviously hostile architecture has angered quite a lot of people, inspiring social media campaigns and even sticker and graffiti efforts against the features because these effects are, by their very nature, uh, not only anti-homeless, but just anti-human. As critics point out, you know what about older members of society, uh, homeless or not, who simply might need to sit down more often? Uh, what if they they or anyone else uh, ha, you know has a health episode? You need to lay down, but oh, you can't lay there because there are spikes coming out of the concrete for no reason. Like you're like you live in a Mortal
0: Combat game. Yeah, there's a really depressing lack of compassion evident in those. Though at the same time, I mean. To be fair to, I guess, the people who would install things like that, I mean, like, the problem is that there you know, there are people without a place of their own to, to lie down or to sleep or something like that. And, like, the one owner of a building or something can't individually solve the problem right. and give everyone a yeah. place to live. Uh, and so, like, they're just forced to individually deal with their own problem, which is that people keep laying across the doorstep of my building. But it's sad to see that Problem dealt with by just like trying to make things even harder for the people who end up sleeping there.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Certainly, to your point that the the individual store owner is not going to solve the wicked problem of homelessness. Uh, We call it a wicked problem because it's something with a a number of different factors involved in. It's very difficult to address and to solve. It's the kind of effort that. People devote their lives to to trying to deal with.
0: Oh, but I mean, I think there there are clearly things you can do to reduce homelessness. I think mm-hmm. I think the evidence is there. Oh, that, certainly. Yeah.
1: But in, but in terms of the individual store owner, right? They can't they do can't the, do it yeah. themselves. But you know, ultimately, the, the issue is you know benches that you can actually sleep on are not going to fix anything. But But neither does the presence of hostile architecture, even though it may allow some people to to better ignore the underlying problems in society and and that's the thing like it's about making ultimately it makes the problem less visible to segments of the population yeah and without actually solving the actual problem
0: yeah, it wouldn't make any sense to. To blame the the homelessness problem to begin with on the individual store owner or, or homeowner or whatever that's putting these measures in place. But I mean it, it does seem like – I don't know. This is the kind of thing where you really need collective action, the action through large nonprofits or through the government to, yeah. to try to intervene to solve uh, homelessness more systemically and like actually connect people with places to live rather than than trying to come up with ways to make the problem less visible.
1: Right, yeah. Ultimately, I I would say that metal spikes are never the perfect answer to any given problem. So we we bring all this up, not to to end this two-parter on a really negative note, but ultimately, again, to think about the power of architectural design and uh, the power of architectural objects in our environments.
0: Well, yeah, and to emphasize again one of the many ways – I mean this is what we've been exploring throughout these episodes is that – is that the designs of cities and the designs of buildings and the designs of public spaces are not necessarily neutral, neutral, not necessarily in a moral sense and not necessarily in, uh, in a public health sense. They are not just a matter of aesthetic preferences. The design of buildings in public spaces in many ways have public health outcomes they have uh, uh, cultural outcomes, and they have moral implications
1: yeah absolutely and and we live in these environments so if it is an environment where there are spikes on the stairs, I mean imagine like growing up seeing that every day and that being just part of your world and you have to like and asking like why are there spikes on the stairs, mom and they 're like oh, that's so people don 't sit on the stairs. <laughs> that is a weird uh, message to drive home. Yeah. So uh, hopefully in these episodes we've explored you know the, the various ways that, uh, that that certainly design can make an environment an artificial environment uh more imposing and more negative but also the ways that they can make make it more positive and ultimately more in line with the natural world that we evolved to thrive in.
0: Totally. My my take is less spikes, more trees.
1: Yes, less spikes, more trees. Uh big atriums are great. <laughs> um, as long as they don't have spikes all over
0: them. <laughs> I don't know. It's, uh, some atrium-type type spikes can be cool. Like, uh, like on the especially ceiling? Especially they, if they're like spikes within the vegetation. Yeah. Yeah, well, to go back to Mortal Kombat, there was, and stuff, yeah. there was
1: that one stage in the second game where they had the spikes on the ceiling and you would punch someone up into the spikes. But that's a much better design because if someone can still lay on the floor, it's fine. You're not—no one's going to trip over something and fall on the spikes. Much better design.
0: Let's uh, let's do a finishing move on this episode. Yes, uh,
1: we're gonna have to call it here. Obviously, you know, there's so much we could have talked about. Additionally, concerning architecture and the different styles of architecture, the way different. Things impact our mind from you know uh, you know sh- sharp angles to uh, spirals uh, uh, and so forth. But we only have so much time. Uh, in the meantime, we'd love to hear though from is certainly any architects out there that happen to be listening to the show or people who have experience with any of the architectural styles, features, or uh, specific sites that we've mentioned uh, on these episodes. We we invite uh, listener feedback uh, all the time. Right in. We'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, if you want more Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's The Mothership. That's where you'll find the episodes. You'll also find us anywhere you get your podcasts and wherever that happens to be. Leave us some stars. Leave us a nice review. That really helps us out.
0: Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you'd like to get in touch with us uh, for any of the reasons we talked about in this past couple of episodes, just to say hi or to suggest a topic for the future, you can email us at contact at stuff to blow Thank you.
2: work.